Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Coming up on the Audible, a broadcasting legend is retiring. We will get into that with somebody who knows him very well, and we'll answer your emails on this episode of the Audible. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It's Wednesday morning. Bruce, we had to scramble a little bit with some uh, late-breaking news, but fortunately, you you came up with a great get. Yes, we'll get to the reason behind the get in a minute, but uh, the legendary voice of of not just college sports, but had been such a such a a prominent voice for NFL Today and pregame shows and and everything beyond that. Brent Musburger, a guy you and I both really like personally, announced he's stepping down, and he's stepping down pretty soon in about a week or so. Uh, as we dis- we're going to discuss this, you know, quite a bit this morning. And we we decided we had a really good option for a guest here of a guy, a behind-the-scenes guy, who worked with him for 25 years and really kind of had a dream job kind of scenario, how he ended up working side-by-side with Brent for so long. And that is Brian Movelson, who is now a big executive at IMG. And Brian had a great job at EA Sports before that. But all along, uh, he was Brent's spotter on broadcast so with that let's let's bring in brian movelson to the audible today hello guys brian how are you fantastic yeah that was uh big news big news it'll be uh it'll be different without having brent regularly on the airwaves but uh what a career so when we get into this i'm curious you're you're a michigan guy you're a michigan grad how exactly did you end up start working with brent at such a young start of your career yeah, that's a good story. Uh, I, I was a student at the University of Michigan working in media relations. And back then, the late 80s, when uh, you know, Michigan had very good basketball and football, uh, Brent was with CBS at the time, and he'd come in and do a game. And while I was working in the uh, athletic media relations office, I would assist, just like you know, you guys get assisted by uh, students that are working in the office. And uh, I always had a little story for Brent or a little extra information. And he and I kind of hit it off. And uh, but that was that, and then I started going to work for ABC and uh, right out of college because I had made all those connections. Um, but Brent, I was with Brent in 1989 when the national championship, when Michigan won the national championship in basketball. Brent was calling that, and uh, we, again, had a chance to provide him some information and, and just kind of hit it off. I went to ABC right out of college in 1990, and uh, and, and Brent, as you know, in the Final Four of 1990, um, left CBS. And so... Uh, before long, he came over to ABC, and I was one of the recognizable uh, young guys that that he knew, and, and we hit it off. And uh, I was doing Monday Night Football for for quite a while there. And then, when Brett needed a new spotter in 1995 season, um, he had asked me to join him in the booth, and so I had a great run of uh, well, 14 years every game with Brent, and we uh, we got to see a lot of great games. And so, obviously, the relationship uh, grew, and we uh, were great friends. I mean. As this, as we were, you know, as this came out on Wednesday morning, and people are are sharing, you know, their favorite Brent moments, and you realize, my gosh, 
he was the voice. I mean, we're just talking in college football here. You know, obviously he did uh, NBA, he did NFL, he did college basketball. But, you know, in our world, he's the voice of the Doug Flutie Hail Mary. You know, I found the Deion Sanders punt return. Now, some of these are before your time working with him. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you can rattle off right now some of the most memorable m- moments in college football that you were there with him for. Yeah, we had some just fantastic games. And, you know, the great thing about Brent is he was big game Brent. So when you tuned in, it was a big game, or he made it feel like it was a big game. In fact, I mean, some of our best games were like a Utah at Colorado State, where we may, maybe have been assigned that week to, you know, the Old Mountain West Conference, or uh, an Air Force at Army and, and all the spectacle that goes with that. He would make that seem as big as a, you know, Oklahoma, Nebraska, or, or Texas, Texas A&M, or Michigan, Notre Dame. Um, so every game for Brent, he, he would bring that enthusiasm, that energy, and make it a big game. Um, but, yeah, some great, great, great games that we had. I mean, I still remember the Rose Bowl where Jake Plummer and Joe Germain, uh, you know, duel to the end in, in Pasadena, and uh, that was a fantastic game. I mean, there was a game where um, – where Nebraska and um, and Scott Frost kind of had this crazy play where it went yeah, off. Yeah, I uh, found that one this morning. And, yeah, Matt, Matt Davison. Yeah, and you know, as a spotter, I, I happened to have that Matt Davison had just checked in the game and pointed to him. And 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 the great thing about Brent, I mean, he had it. He had the call. If you look back on that call, boom, he knew exactly what was happening. And then at the uh, at the ESPN ABC kind of get together in August great thing about Brent is, you know, he called, he called out his spotter because I got to tell you, I had, you know, they called that out as like, he had a, you know, a great call and this is the way announcers should be doing it. And, and he, without hesitation said, you know, my spotter, Brian Movelson had that all the way. And so um, that's what made him so great to work. Not that I was looking for anything to your point, I'm behind the scenes, but you know, he knew he, he was a guy that uh, was super loyal and uh, just fantastic to work with. Hey, Brian, you and I are about the same age, which is a little older than Stu. My first real Mm -hmm. memories of Brent, and this is kind of a very nostalgic feel to it when, you know, this is way before ESPN or certainly before my town got ESPN, way before all the 24-7 sports shows that exist. So you hear so much about NFL going in. But I remember as a little kid, I would wait, you know, so, so so badly, so desperately for NFL stuff to start on Sunday mornings. And you'd sit through like I had no concept of what Meet the Press was or any of those shows that would be on because you didn't sure. you know, you had whatever seven channels on your TV. And then at whatever it was, I want to say it was 1231 or whatever or 1230, yeah. you would see you were looking live at Fulton County Stadium and. You know, I not that I cared that much about whoever the Falcons because I don't think they were that good back then. But it was just the feeling of okay, this is the start. This means football is here. And you know, not to interrupt, but a great story behind that. Um, in working with Brent, you know, I told him he taught me the word intangibles because he and the Greek used to have that little <laughs> I remember the checklist. System, remember. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was like, intangibles? What are you talking about there? But obviously that was, you know, a Vegas term for where, you know, they wanted to lean the game. Um, but the, you are looking live. It's, I mean, everybody knows Brent for you are looking live. And so that was an NFL Today call where I asked him about it, and it was, it was basic, basically a signal back to Vegas to say, hey, you are looking live 
at Lambeau Field in Green Bay. Oh, and by the way, it's freshly snowing. We've got six inches of snow <laughs> on the ground, and you may want to take the under. And so um, that is where that all came because back then we didn't have the weather channel to, to go online and see you know what the hourly uh, report was for the weather. So Brent would signal to Vegas that you are lucky live uh, at Mile High Stadium in Denver or wherever it was, and and they go around the country with that. And that was that would that was Brent's thing to kind of you know get those live shots because they were there to do the game, and you know it might be a half hour from kick or three hours from kick, but why not just kind of give a little tease and show that show that climate there? And so uh, that was great. And, and a lot of people may not know, but you are looking live left for seven years. So I remember it vividly. I was with Dan Fouts and we were actually in Eugene, Oregon doing a Michigan state game against Oregon, 1998. And Brent had not done you are looking live from 1990, 90, when he left CBS to, to, as it turns out this, this game. And uh, we were at lunch in Eugene, Dan and I, and we were talking about, you know, Brent, yeah, this was Dan's first year working with, uh, with Brent. He had just started that September. It might've been the second or third game of the season. And we were talking about, you know, God, I really love that you are looking live. And then I told him, you know, I grew up with that. You are looking live. And I said, Brent, how, you know, why'd that go away? How, how come that isn't being used anymore? And, and he used to call me Moe, right? He still does. Uh, Moe, you know, I, I always thought that was a CBS thing because, you know, I did it on the NFL today and that was kind of a CBS thing. And I said, just doesn't seem right, Brent. That was you. You were doing. You were looking live, and unbeknownst to us, you know, Dan. Dan was. Yeah. Oh God, I remember. You were looking live. You know, when I was playing for the Chargers, and I'd be watching the NFL today. Before you know, they always had the late start, and so something came over Brent that day. And then the next day, unbeknownst to us, he breaks out. You can go back and look at it. The Michigan State game in '98. He, he breaks out with this. You are looking live with all this enthusiasm at Hudson Stadium, you know. And and Fouts and I looked at each other like, oh, my God, it's back. And from then on, he used it every game, you know, pretty much up until now. So uh, that's Brent's You Are Looking Live. And it it, it went away for quite a while there. I got a uh, – one of the connections to it was – when Greg Schiano got the Rutgers job, I mean, they had been god awful for so long and a punchline and everything. And I'd known Greg for a while and would go out there to, because I lived in New York, go out there to check up on him. And they got the program to be, you know, borderline respectable. And I remember the first year he got him into a bowl game was 2005. You know, it was a year where they had gotten smoked by Louisville by like 50 in a game. And, you know, I don't think they beat anybody who was any good that season. The first time they'd gone to a bowl in a long time was in Phoenix, right? Correct. It was the Insight Bowl. Yeah. And I can't believe you're dumping on Rutgers again after we sung their no, praises. No, this is going to get better. Still. Okay. So I just remember, you know, and there's so many game, bowl games, and I'm not knocking other announcers, but the other announcers aren't Brent Musburger. But when I heard they played ASU in the Insight Bowl, and they almost won the game, but anyway, they, uh, just to hear Brent Musburger kick off a Rutgers broadcast with you are looking live. I was like, Oh my God, Rutgers and Greg Schiano have now made it. They've made the big time because that's what you got. When you heard Brent Musburger, you, every game felt like it was a big deal. And I think right to the end of, you know, his career, whether he was the top voice, you know, when you worked with him, it was, I guess it was at towards the end of, you know, it was him and him and Bob Davey and Brent I and mean, him, him and Bob Davey and Kirk. And then it was just him and Kirk. But it always felt like a big deal when he was there. Agreed. That was kind of Brent's 
he made it feel like a big game. And I think that was largely because of his love of what he was doing. In fact, he joked when he was in the witness protection plan on the SEC network, just because <laughs> of the sheer number of homes being down, um, he still loved calling those games. It didn't matter. He loved going to places that he hadn't been in a long time, like Starkville or you know some of those places in, in the SEC. And uh, again, it just made that feel of a big game. And, and again, he didn't, it didn't hurt his ego that he wasn't doing the the big game on Saturday night. He was still going out and having a great time, getting paid to to talk about a football game. And, and that's the way he always remembered it. It's funny the timing of this because, like you said, when he. Um you know, kind of got relegated to the SEC network a couple years ago, you would have thought he'd be ticked off. And you would have thought that, uh, and, and maybe he was privately, I don't know, but he never expressed that publicly. And so it just so happens that last night, Tuesday night, I was watching the Tennessee-Kentucky basketball game. He's on the call. Now, that's not SEC network. That's, I believe, ESPN. But I remember thinking, like, man, he's, what, 77? He still gets on a pl- Like, you know, we all fly for work and and it can be a pain in the butt he still gets on a plane and flies to knoxville tennessee on a a weeknight in in january to call a basketball game that frankly is not that big a game like how does he still do that now the next morning it turns out he's retiring in a week but to your point brian it just seemed like he somehow over 50 years of doing this never lost the passion for going out and calling a sporting event you're absolutely right. I mean, he just loved doing what he did, and uh, he'd, he'd remind himself that he's getting paid to do something that a lot of people just want to go and watch. And, and he's he's got a small part of it, and and uh, he'd always say that you know this these three hours of a football game or two hours of basketball game, whatever whatever it was he was working on. Um, were kind of an escape, and you know Brent's a sports writer. Brent, like you guys, was a writer. Um, back in Chicago, you know, before he made it big in television. And he would have, he would have a opinion. And um, I think a lot of times that would show in a broadcast. He'd, he'd, he'd allow his opinion to, to get out a little bit. And maybe that made some people upset. You know, when you think about his job, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the hardest things to be as, as exciting as he is and the big games that Brent would do. You're, you're Texas, right? And all of a sudden A&M scores and you're in your house and it's all quiet. You hear Brent seemingly full of excitement because A&M has scored. Um, and it's the same way the other way, right? When Texas scores, you're an A&M fan. You're like, gosh, Brent likes the Longhorns. Or, you know. So there was this feeling that you know the Michigan people thought Brent didn't like him. The Ohio State people thought Brent didn't like him. But, you know, Brent, Brent didn't care. I mean, Brent liked going to a few other places probably more than others, but he just loved calling the game, and uh, uh, well, he did care a little bit about who wins, right? Let's be honest, oh, <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah, of course, about the final score you know, he, more than anything. Yeah, he always had an interest, right? And uh, it was, it was, um, you know, people that would listen closely, I think, would uh, would pick up on some of those things. But um, again, Brent was was not shy about that because he knew how many people had that same interest, or how many people across the country might care that, you know, this game isn't over yet. Um, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So uh, he, he would want to, he would want to convey as much information as possible. And obviously, you know, there was issues with ESPN and, and not being blatantly uh, more so back then, but you know, the gambling thing was kind of not to be touched upon. Um, but now I think, you know, they always talk about lines on game day and everything else. But uh you know, before that time, Brent had to kind of tiptoe around it, and he would still get as much information as he could 
because he knew people cared about it and would, would want it. Hey, Mauve, uh, in in the AP story about his departure, it literally says Musburger plans to move to Las Vegas and help his family start a sports handicapping business, which seems apropos well, given you know the tenor of a lot of his comments. I'm curious, what was now that you can say it? Maybe what was the best advice or tip or prediction he ever gave you off air? Oh man. Um, he would, uh, he was a big, uh, big over under guy with the weather. So that, you know, going back to the, to the, you were looking live, obviously he had great interest in that. Um, but I can't think of any one game where he's like, Oh my gosh, you know, you guys, this is the team to be on. Um, but he, he would kind of keep that stuff to himself. But, um, Again, he he uh, he would have a lot of interest in kind of the weather, whether there was snow, and he loved snow because it made for great television. Because people, you know, all over the country wouldn't necessarily be experiencing that same weather we were right in that stadium, and um, so he would always highlight that and make a big deal with the director to get as much shots of that as possible. And um, you know, Brent, Brent Brent had his hand on everything, whether it was a a shot of somebody in the stands or. Uh, you know, Brent Brent would uh, would really bring a lot of value to the broadcast, which you know I I'm not saying that maybe the current group of announcers don't, but I think just Brent's experience, you know, the veteran that he is, he's seen so much, he's worked with so many producers and directors, that um, he he's able to you know up until today still just really um, touch those broadcasts a lot more than I think probably a lot of broadcasters do that just go out and call the game. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that. Somebody pointed out on Twitter, and I hadn't thought of this, that literally in like a six-month span, uh, Vern Lundquist, Brent Musburger, Vin Scully, and I didn't realize this, but Dick Enberg, have all retired. Enberg, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm afraid Al Michaels is probably not too far away. Well, and so I started thinking, who's left? What voices from my childhood are left? Al Michaels is obviously one of them. Marv Albert is another. But, I again, I don't want to take anything away from the current generation of broadcasters, but it does feel like we're losing a certain style. Like Vern and Brent embody to me a different style of broadcasting. I think the current style of broadcasting tends to be more kind of down the middle. These guys were not afraid to, you know, whether it's Brent pointing out Catherine Webb in the stands or what, like these guys weren't allowed to have, weren't afraid to have a little bit of fun. Agreed. And I think, um, that might be a little bit inherent with just the way when we were kids, the way, you know, there might've only been three or four college football games on in a week. Now you've got probably 40. And so, you know, the broadcasting role has changed. It's, 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 it just isn't as prominent um, where we would just see, you know, Brent or Vern or, you know, some of the great guys that we came up with Keith Jackson, for example. Um, Now there's a lot of broadcasters. There's so much, television sports that uh, I just don't think those, those roles are going to be as big as, as they were when, when we were growing up, not to say that these guys aren't very talented, but I do think that era of that big iconic broadcaster uh, on a sports game is, is probably fading away. Stu and I had talked, uh, I don't want to say this fall, you know, we had Joe Tessitore on our podcast and Joe's a, a favorite of ours and he has the same, you know, degree where when he's on a game, you feel like it has a, it feels big, but I think the product and look, I, I'm, I work on telecast too, but I do think the product feels whether it is or not, it feels like it's diluted just because there's every, there's so many games on TV now. And I think that has probably had an effect where 
you know, you hear a voice and you're not really sure who the guy is necessarily or who the person is just because, you know, a lot of people sound interchangeable. You know, this guy was a former quarterback, maybe spent six years in the NFL or whatever. But, you know, you just, you know, Brent and Vern especially um, were guys to me that that were so unique. And part of it was because they'd been done it for so long, but also just because of the styles they had. Uh, were, were I thought rose above and, and made the games feel a certain way and everything. Um, from ye, from your perspective, what's the the lasting memory you'll have of working with Brent? Well, you know, we talked all about you know what a great broadcaster he was, and, and uh, I, I guess really just those nights before the game when you're in State College, PA, at a restaurant or Ann Arbor. Lincoln, Nebraska, and you're interacting with fans. And, uh, you know, again, people are rolling up on him and being like, come on, Brent, how come you don't like the Huskers more? And we'd be like, what? What are you talking about? He loves the Huskers. And uh, that sort of thing. I mean, but, but, you know, Brent would do it in his sense of humor and be very polite and just an all-around good guy. I mean, you know, I, my son, who's eight years old, a big sports fan, was like, oh, my gosh, Brent's retiring. You know, I mean, he, it's, but he's, I said, what are you going to remember about Brent? He goes, what a good guy he is. You know, just that, just that, uh, that good guy he is. And that's what I'm going to remember is just all those great times working with him. And, you know, we'll continue our friendship and, uh, I'll go down and see him in Vegas. And like you said, uh, everybody should go do that and say hi to him and wherever he is. And he'll probably buy you a beer. <laughs> yeah. I would think that the, that it would be extremely fun. You know, you worked with him watching the game. I assume it's extremely fun just to kick back and watch a game with him. Oh yeah. He's got a great place up in Montana where he's got, you know, four TVs up on a wall, and uh, he's got another little, like he's got a little tavern with another three, three, uh, three TVs up on the wall, and he'll be watching. You know, in the summer, he'll be watching the Cubs over here and uh, the NBA over there, and and um, it's just great. He's just a he's a consummate sports fan, and that's probably why what made him so uh, relatable to a lot of people is that he's the kind of guy that you just sit in a, in a bar and and look at a game and talk about it with, and uh, I think that came through on the broadcast. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on on short notice. You got it. Like your show, guys, and uh, appreciate it. You take care. Thanks, Mo. So, Bruce, we didn't really even discuss, like, what's the connection here? How, how did we end up being able to get his spotter of 25 years on basically an hour's notice? Yeah, so I, like I referenced, I, I got to know Move through uh, the Elite 11. They were a partner with EA Sports for years, and so... He and some of his colleagues would be around there and just he's a great networking, easy to talk to guy. As you could see, I'm not surprised why Brent gravitated to him. Uh, he's the best networker of anybody I've ever seen. And here's a good example of it. So and you know well about how hard it is to promote a book. So about 10 years ago, my recruiting book, Meat Market, comes out. And it has a lot of like a lot of promotional aspects I think could have worked into broadcasts. Unfortunately for me, you know, Ole Miss was so mediocre at that point, they never got on a CBS game national. But anyway, I said to Move, I said, hey, any chance you could get Brent the book? There's some tie overs into this game or that game that he was doing. And the season came and went and uh, basically, you know, it didn't it kind of yielded nothing on that front, which I wasn't expecting anything. I mean, it's Brent Musburger trying to work into a national telecast. It's, those things aren't very organic if a guy just kind of throws in a random plug. So, 
it's late in the season. There's really only one game left. And at the time, ESPN didn't even have the playoff. That was back when Fox had the playoff. So ESPN's big game of the year at that point always was the Rose Bowl. And, you know, as you well know, and I've warned anybody I know who's a first-time author, do not get make yourself crazy by constantly checking your book ratings on Amazon because they're updated hourly. And it's a skewed algorithm or whatever, but I never listen to my own advice. I would check it all the time too. It's just kind of maddening to do, but you do it. Anyhow, so late in the year, uh, Move is, is, I think, is working the Holiday Bowl. I don't even remember who was in the game, but I happened to be down there. And he said, he goes, hey, uh, I think we're going out for drinks. You should come. You know, this was back when I think Fouts was – I want to say it was, I don't know, maybe that was a year before Fouts. I want to say that Brent was, you know, his guy, and maybe Fouts was there too for some reason. So I went and, you know, got to know Brent a little better, and Move got him the book. Well, anyway, I didn't think much of it, but we I was covering the Rose Bowl that year, and it was Illinois-USC. And in the course of that game, that was the late Joel McKnight's best game at USC, a kind of coming out party. And I'm in the press box. I'm not listening to the telecast at all. But at 3.13 Pacific, my phone like blows up in my pocket. And I'm getting texts and calls like left and right. Little did I know at that point, Brent Musburger had, had talked about me and Meat Market. And like I was hearing from people I didn't even know I had my phone number. Like there's a bartender in my town. who I, I don't know why he has my cell. He texted me just like people I hadn't heard from in years. Uh, and so I remember when I got, was driving home, I just remember thinking all the, you know, just kind of angst you get about trying to promote a book. I said, you know, I I don't have to worry about any of it. I'm not saying this made my book a bestseller or anything like that, but I'm like, that's as big a hit as I could ever, ever ask to get. And, you know, Molson had a big role in, in getting it to Brent and obviously it worked out and I'm, I was grateful for it. And so, uh, so that's how the relationship kind of took an ep- another step forward. So this is crazy, but I also have a Brent Musburger promoting my book story. Um, but with the, with a little bit of background, uh, he I first met him actually on a plane. So th- remember one season, 98, I was at ABC. And uh, it just, you know, I was mostly in the office, but they did send me to a game. And that game was the game where Ricky Williams broke Tony Dorsett's record. Brent called it. And, you know, they booked our travel, so we were on the same flight back, and I introduced myself, and the Northwestern connection, you know, that's all it took. Like, from then on, anytime I saw him in a press box or whatnot, he remembered, and he'd say, you know, how's it going, Wildcat, or something like that. Anyway, fast forward to 2007. Like you said, you have to be pretty shameless when you're trying to promote a book, and Mm so I would bring copies on the road and hand them out to various media people. And yeah, I saw him in the press box before a Nebraska, a game at Nebraska, USC at Nebraska, handed it to him, didn't think about it again, assumed it was just going to get filed away. Well, uh, USC blows out Nebraska and it's a lopsided game. It's one of those games where they have a lot of time to fill. And kind of like you mentioned, right? I'm in the press box. I'm not hearing the broadcast, but I would get filled in on it soon enough. He goes, he just found a segue. He just found a spot for it. He was like, um, they were talking about a bowl game or something. You know, speaking of bowls, our friend Stuart Mandel at Sports Illustrated is a book out. Bowls, bowls, and tattered souls. And da 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 da. And I got to give Kirk Herbstreit credit. He probably had no idea what he was talking about. And he still picked up on it. Um, 
I think it's probably the fact that we both have a story like that probably is uh, stems to the fact that, uh, like Brian said, he was a sports writer at heart. Um, went to my journalism school. Actually, funny story. He told us, I don't know if it's true, that he never actually graduated from Medill because he didn't pay his parking tickets. <laughs> um, you know, there's a famous picture of him around the around Joe Namath at the uh, poolside at the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. And he was covering it. He might have been radio at that point. I can't. I don't remember if he was there for for newspaper or radio. So I think he had a he had a fondness for the for, for the sports writers that maybe not necessarily every broadcaster has. Yeah, and I just think that you know it comes back to he was a really good storyteller, and I think that I think that that's one of the things that sometimes gets lost, even in the context of look, we're, our backgrounds. It is about storytelling, you know, and it's got to be the core of what you're doing. Uh, you know, I think sometimes a lot of people don't see it that way or maybe miss that part of it when it comes to, you know, who the play-by-play guys are of a football game. But there is an aspect of storytelling there in that game, certainly. And I think the people who do it really, really well will talk about that. And I think that's one of the reasons why why Brent had so much success and resonated the way he did because he really understood big moments and and knew how to punctuate them, which is which is quite a gift to have. So this has been fun talking about Brent. Uh, we are going to get your emails, but I wanted to ask you real quick about something in the news. On Tuesday, it was uh, reported, I think, by the Detroit News that Michigan has become the first school ever to have three assistant coaches making a million dollars a year with Pep Hamilton, Tim Drebno, and, uh, and, Don Brown. and Don Brown. Now, to put that in perspective, last year in all of college football, at least according to the USA Today database, there were 12 assistants making a million dollars. I assume that number has gone up, um, but still, that's the whole country. Michigan now has three on its staff. Last year, LSU was the only one that even had two. So this is kind of a milestone moment. Like I remember the first time a head coach made $3 million a year, and then everybody had to catch up to that, and then four, and then five. And I actually vividly remember when Monty Kiffin, when Lane got hired at Tennessee and made his dad the first ever, first ever $1 million coordinator. Um, some people don't make a big deal out of this. Some people are outraged. Where do you fall? I mean, look, the, I don't know if you were with me. I feel like you were at the Big Ten media days. We were kind of hanging out, and we ended up running into Urban Meyer in the lobby. Mm-hmm. And it basically came back to like, well, where's all this money going to go? Do you remember that? Yeah. And he, of course, I think, as I say, I don't remember talking about assistant coach salaries with him, but I know a big pet cause of his was that the, you know, he was, he was instrumental in getting the, the um, college football playoff and, and, and turn the, the final four to pay for the family's travel. Um, and, but he, he would like to see it be much more than that. You know, travel to bowl, all the other bowl games and, and whatnot. It's true. I mean, I think between that and them announcing that they're going to Italy, we touched on that a little bit in the last podcast, but hadn't become official yet. They are, they are in fact, going to take the team to Italy at the end of spring semester. And that's important distinction, not spring break, which the NCAA is now outlawed, spring semester. And some people are all up in arms about that. These schools at the highest level, not all schools, but the ones, the Michigans, the Ohio States, big stadiums, and in particular in the Big Ten with the new TV deals they have coming up this year where they're now making far more than any other conference except maybe the SECs in the same ballpark. 
Like they've got more money than they know what to do with. And and so I would imagine that trip to Rome is going to go well into the seven figures. Harbaugh himself made nine million last year. Three assistants are going to make a million each. So I guess, you know, you, you see, oh, it's amateurism. Well, we but these coaches are get, are going to get fired more, you know, faster and faster too. I mean, oh, the expectations sure. are higher. I think that also what what's a side note of this is, and I thought about this. Look, LSU is paying its two coordinators a combined about three and a half million dollars, and what that does is, Dave Aranda certainly a hot coach at, at two million, Matt Canada around one point five. There aren't a lot of like jobs that you're going to be able to go to without taking a massive pay cut as a head coach unless they get like another a power five conference job. You know, there's a handful of of group of five jobs that are going to pay pay anywhere near, you know, plus one point five million. Right. And everybody gets all up in arms about that and the widening gap. And I would always just say whether it's recruiting, whether it's coaches, there very few of them are going to choose that group of five school over the power five school to begin with. I mean, we could have a whole discussion about. By the way, uh, just one other thought on this, you know, like sometimes the numbers aren't totally gospel. Like I think that when you see the numbers, those are public schools. Like I wouldn't be surprised at one of Lane's Lane Kiffin USC staff, if they were very close to having three guys who were making a million, because Monty Kiffin was making well over a million. I think when Ogeron was technically the defensive coordinator, but in title only, he might have been at a million as well. I don't, I don't know what they were paying Kennedy Pola, but I, I bet if he was going to work for Lane Kiffin, he was probably making a lot. And again, USC wasn't paying Lane nine million like Michigan's paying Harbaugh. So the private school, I mean, they they were paying a lot of money, and that was almost ten years ago. That was two thousand ten or eleven, I think. So I don't want to get into a whole thing about whether or not the players should be paid. If the coaches can make this much, why aren't the players paid? Et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, people do connect that the two to each other. At the end of the day, the rules are the rules right now. And I don't think anybody could argue that these aren't worthwhile investments. I mean, look at the effect Jim Harbaugh's had on Michigan football already. Uh, and But they got to keep winning. They got In fact, they got to win more than they're winning now. People are going to start to get antsy if they don't win a Big Ten title here soon. So, um, you know, Saban, whatever he makes, it's worth... Probably he's probably worth way more than that with the impact he's had on that university. People get up in arms about these are colleges. Then why aren't they spending the money on academics? Uh, well, first of all, the money that the, the money that's being generated is being generated from athletics, not academics. It's a different pool. Yeah, it's a different pool. In most cases, the schools like that do donate, uh, not you know, allocate money back to the academic side. Um, but I, it's the cliche, but it's true. Let me know when there are 100,000 people that want to come watch a chemistry lecture. I mean, it's, it's, the money goes where the, the demand is. And uh, it's uncomfortable to see these numbers going up higher and higher while the player, other than the stipend that they just approved, remains the same. Uh, but I don't know. I'm not one of these people that gets worked up about assistant coach salary. Some people get worked up about the bonus. Oh, I can't believe he's going to make a $50,000 bonus just for winning the division or winning the conference. Like, who cares? It You know, who's it hurting that these guys get paid well? Biggest pet peeve you have, a thing that becomes a big deal, is it, uh, is it TV ratings is it, or bowl ratings or TV ratings? Is it 
Is it assistant coach salaries? I mean, for me, it seems to be. I say seems to be because whenever it comes up, I seem to get pissed off. Is that there are too many bowls? Because my feeling is, oh, we know how you feel about that. Yeah. So what's yours? Um, that would be pretty close up there. Uh, oh, I can tell you exactly what it is. It's uh, while there are many worthy points to be made on both sides of the pay the players argument, I hate the hyperbole of they are exploited, that they are indentured servants. Come on, it's it's not that it's college sports. Uh, walk, especially at the highest levels, uh, walk into one of these plush athletic facilities with the uh, lounges and the video, you know, like anything anybody could no college student is getting these kind of treatment and say that they are being exploited you want to say that it's unfair certainly i would buy that but exploited indentured i mean there was a book that had the word indentured right on the cover that bugs me that tells me that you've never it's easy to write that or say that when you've never spent any time around the actual athlete ask them if they feel indentured darren Ravel had a tweet yesterday and i admit this is pretty interesting to think about okay Michigan announces they're going to Italy. How many players on Michigan, if you gave them the choice of going to Italy or just taking the money that it would cost to send them to Italy, would take the money? I would say probably 90%. You think that much, huh? I do, because if you gave me that analogy, I would take it. Really? Yes. I saw the initial replies to his were all like 99%. And Michigan was allowed to ask players if they wanted a week in Rome yeah, with the team. Yeah, I would say it probably take be the money and cost. How many would take the dollars? I think it would be high, but I do think that there's a certain contingent that would say, you know what, this is a once in a lifetime experience. They're setting it up and everything. Like, I don't, I think you're thinking like a grown up man who has been on trips with his wife and thinks of it that way. You're not thinking, especially of a lot of the people, people we're talking about. Do not come from much money. Well, that's where I think it would money. fall. Like the, it would just completely depend on what your economic background is. Obviously, if you come from uh, uh, from poverty, from disadvantaged household, I mean, what do you think that costs? Like two thousand dollars? I think it's like four nights, room, flight. That's probably more than that. It's probably five grand. If it's five, if it's really five grand, everybody's taking it. I think it's even if it's twenty five grand, everybody's taking it. Did you just go up to twenty five? I'm sorry, twenty five hundred dollars. Sorry. Oh, okay. Um, everybody, huh? I think so. Well, one player did tweet that he he would absolutely want the trip and reply to him, but that player is also the holder. So, <laughs> so um, ah, that would be interesting. I mean, nobody you could never get them to admit that on the record, probably. But if somebody had the, um, it would probably have to be a student writer there, somebody who kind of has their trust and could ask them all off the record. Which one would you rather do? I don't know. I don't think it would be 90. It would be high. It would be well over 50. I don't think it would be 90. Uh, I think you're wrong. I think you're out of touch. Okay. Should we get to the mailbag? Okay. Let's go. Come on, Rob. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And our first question comes... From Sparky in Yuma, Arizona. Stuart and Bruce, love the podcast and have a question for you. Nick Saban turns 66 this year. If he were to retire in the next four years, do you think that Dabo Swinney would consider taking the reins of Alabama? I don't think it's out of the question as Alabama is his alma mater, a walk-on that earned a scholarship and won a national title. I guess this boils down to the question of, 
Is Clemson a, quote, destination program? Uh, a, I think he would consider it because he is, that is his, his, uh, his alma mater. He's from there. But I don't think he would take it. A couple reasons. First of all, I think he has certainly made Clemson a destination program for sure now. And I think another reason is I'm not sure you want to be the guy to replace Nick Saban in Alabama. You know, why does Dabo Sweeney need to leave an elite program to go to another elite program where he set up everything the way he wants? It's not going to be, hey, you're the guy replacing Nick Saban. I'm sure somebody would a lot of guys would jump at that chance. I don't think Dabo Sweeney needs to be that guy to jump at that chance now. I think if you'd asked the same question to me two years ago, I would have said, absolutely, he's probably going to go to Alabama. But now that they've won a national championship there, I think he probably feels we are Alabama. Like, we're going to be Alabama now. And why would I leave? I think he'd be tempted. I'm sure, like, former teammates, you know, I know he he coached there at first. Like, there would be a lot of people that he's close to who would try to woo him to Alabama. I'm sure he would be tempted. But, uh, and of course, we don't know what, what will Clemson look like four years from now. Will they have kept this up? Will they have, you know— taking a step back we don't know but i don't think clemson's taking any step back yeah i don't either other than i don't think they're gonna win the national title next year the first year without deshaun watson but I, they could win it the year after that um yeah I, I think i mean who leaves i'm trying to think can you think of a coach who won a national championship and left for another college job nfl yes but another college job um well the best example i can think of was in basketball when Roy Williams left Kansas for UNC, right? Because those are probably two of the most, what would you say, two of like the four most prestigious jobs in the sport. And you're not going to leave being the head coach of Kansas for almost any other college job, but you left for his alma mater. And he turned them down the first time. He went the second time. Um, football, I don't, I don't, can't think of anybody. No, I mean, it's pretty rare. I mean, you have instances like I remember Howard Schnellenberger left Miami after a lot of friction and he went to, you know, basically a startup league and that didn't work out. Some people are going to write in with Urban Meyer, but I don't think that if he had left Florida for Ohio State that year that I would use that as an example. Uh, I thought I actually thought you meant a coach who left right after they won the title. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, I don't necessarily even mean right after because I don't know if Dabo Swinney will be coming off a national title when this decision comes, but he did not leave Florida for Ohio state. He left Florida to ostensibly spend time with his family, call some games for ESPN. He didn't know the Ohio state job was going to, I've heard that revisionist theory of many times that he like, of course there's two, two parts to it. A, he was scared of Nick Saban in Alabama and he couldn't take it anymore. So he left, which I don't buy that at all. Don't buy it for a second. And B that he just decided he wanted Ohio state. The Jim Trestle thing hadn't even, broken yet how would he know that's going to come open yeah i don't uh i don't see that at all um yeah i'm just going through a list of guys here you know the ones who leave you know whether it's dennis erickson um schnellenberger uh, jimmy johnson they're miami guys pretty much i Spur can't spurrier left for the nfl spurrier left for, uh, nick saban left for the nfl mm -hmm. but it's just not a lot of I don't see really anybody who fits Somebody's going to pull one up from the 60s or 70s, but uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Do you want to go to the next question? Yes. I don't think they're going to pull it up from the 60s. I mean, I don't know what Murray Warmoth did, and that's 1960, but I'm just looking at AP National Champs, and I just don't see it. Um, okay. So this is from David Perry from Belton, Texas. Bruce and Stu, 
This last year saw Ezekiel and Dak Prescott light it up for the Dallas Cowboys. Who do you think in this year's draft class will be like Zeke, high expectation and meets them? And who do you think will be like Dak, somebody who is expected to be a backup, a role player, but ends up being pretty special? Thanks, and I hope you guys keep it up during the offseason. Uh, I got a couple options, Stu. Why don't you tell me who you think is the – it would be – The first name that comes to mind for the Zeke uh, type role would be Dalvin Cook. I think he'll be a great NFL running back right from the get-go. I would – Fournette – the only reason I don't say Fournette is because he's coming off I don't injury. think he necessarily meant has to be a running back, by the way. At least that's how I read it. Well, if that's the case, I mean, there's no reason for me to think that Miles Garrett won't be – you know, live up to the hype of being a number one pick, which is it seems like he might be um, – well, I don't know who's your who's your guess who's your answer. My two guys for the Ezekiel Elliott role would be Reuben Foster, who I think will be a really good middle linebacker in the NFL right away, or Solomon Thomas, who I could see being a great edge rusher and impact guy. The Dak Prescott one is is m- more tricky. Um, who did you come up with? So for that, it's got to be somebody who was a pretty established star in college that the NFL is just not taking seriously. Is that, is that the, I would say it's somebody you don't see and you'd have to do a little bit of digging and seeing who is on like top 100 lists or top 50 draft lists. So I'm pulling up a list of, and of course this is a total crapshoot quarterback. So you want me to go first? Yes, please. So I have four names. Wow. How did you come up with this RA? Cause I like, I watched the senior bowl yesterday. I watch, you know, the practices I want. I like, I'm into more of the draft stuff than obviously you are. Um, mine, a couple of guys who are in Mobile now. Actually, I think all of them are. Uh, Marcus Williams, ball hawking safety from Utah. I think he's going to be a really good NFL player. I know he's not. You know, he probably needs to continue to develop physically a little bit. Um, Cooper Cup from Eastern Washington. That's a good one. You know, guys I know who faced him really gush about how good he is. Uh, and then two other guys who are smaller school guys as well. Hassan Reddick from Temple, former walk-on who blossomed into a star for Matt Rule. I think he's going to light it up at the Combine. I could see him being a being a big playmaker. And then the other one is Taiwan Taylor. Taiwan Taylor from Western Kentucky, super athletic receiver. A little unpolished, but I think he will be a big play guy in the NFL. If those guys are lighting up the senior role, don't you expect them to go pretty high? I don't think any of those guys will be in the in the first round, and I'm not sure Reddick or Taylor. I don't know if any of them will be in the second round. I think they're they're borderline at best second round picks. Okay, well then that would qualify as a Prescott. Prescott went in the fourth round, is that right? Yes. And I mean, it was a pretty. And there usually is one of these guys. I'm just not seeing an example of it right now. Who is it? Just a college star, but the NFL says, well. He came from a he's a system guy. He came from the wrong system, or he's too short, and so he ends up slipping down to the fourth round. I'm not seeing a quarterback that necessarily falls in that this year. Um, you would have if if Baker Mayfield had decided not to stay. I mean, I can throw a couple names at you that fit what you're talking about. I mean, you know, it's not like anyone's going to say Pat Elfline is going to be a first round pick. Do you have a grasp of where Deontay Foreman's going to get drafted? I've seen him as low as fourth round. I mean, I went on uh, CBS's draft draft uh, rankings, and I think he was a, considered a fourth round p- projection. Well, there you go. 
Here's a name that I, I don't know where he's on the, some of the lists you're seeing, but he was a great player in the SEC the last couple of years. Zach Cunningham. If he doesn't go high, then they're just not evaluating right. I mean, guy that I I could see not going that high or not as high as his production was Derek Barnett. I mean, I think he'll probably be a top 25 pick. But if you look at what he did production-wise, I mean, right. there'll be a lot. He may be the seventh defensive lineman drafted. I got a good one for you. Okay. NCAA all-time rushing record holder Donnell Pumphrey, who is like 5'8". Yeah, 185 uh, pounds. We'll get completely disregarded, and then we'll go in there and pull like a Darren Sproles. Okay, that's a good. That's a. It's an interesting one. We'll we'll put, write that one down. Okay. All right. Um, your turn. Bruce and Stu, uh, this is from Mike Maruska. I've been curious for a while now about how the whole about the whole transfer process, especially grad transfers. How do players find out which schools are interested in them? How do schools find out and recruit them without tampering with the current school? Is there an open period similar to high school recruiting? I wonder about someone from a smaller school designing a transfer. How do they find out who is interested or even has a scholarship available? Like your guy that went from Bowling Green to Alabama. Yeah, and that one kind of flew beneath the radar a little bit. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of a murky process, and sometimes I feel like we we kind of trample over it a little bit, you know, how we report it. But in terms of who's interested, I think sometimes schools, what they do is they work through the old high school coach. That's the workaround about the tampering part. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that definitely becomes a factor. I think what's challenging, and I know some of the specific examples of this, where there are some, especially as it relates to grad transfer quarterbacks, where guys are expected like, oh, this kid's going to be out, you know, before spring ball or whatever. And then they, the schools find out, no, that kid's like needs – 12 more credits, he may not be out till the summer. And I think that is a very tricky process because I know from talking to some coaches that like, I, I can't talk to that kid until he gets a release. You know, and the kid wants to talk to these coaches to find out if they're interested. You know, last year there was a grad transfer uh, player, not a quarterback, and I knew somebody close to his family and they were trying to get that kid to one specific school and that school wasn't interested. And he ended up at another power five school and was a starter and was a good player. But it's a it's a very you know murky process. And how often do you think because we've often seen players coaches put restrictions on a player's transfer initially because of exactly that, they think that the school that those guys want to go to were tampering. Mm-hmm. How often do you think that happens? I think it happens more. I think it happens probably more than we realize. I think there's a lot of supposition of that. Like the story that that kind of got some traction this week was with Gus Edwards. He's a running back who was initially co- committed to Syracuse, went to Miami, and is transferring. And uh, it had been reported by a Syracuse media outlet that Miami was blocking him. Now, what made the story a little more intriguing was that Mark Rick, the coach at Miami, had a policy where he was basically, hey, if guys don't want to be here, let them go wherever they want. Now, when I talked to somebody at UM, they told me uh, late Tuesday afternoon that this is an administrative policy, basically from Blake James, the AD, and not Mark Rick's policy. Now, that may be covering up for Mark Richt. I don't know. I guess we should take Mark Richt at his word on that because why would he have switched policies? Well, Mark's, yeah, Mark Richt at Georgia 
I mean, yeah. that's how Nick Marshall ended up at um, Auburn. Auburn and Mettenberger at LSU. Like, guys ended up in his Well, Mettenberger was different because he went to a junior college, though. Right, right, right. Um, but there were, there were other guys that ended up at uh, Auburn. Like, I just feel like they were constantly playing against guys that had left their own program. Yeah, it's very, very, um, I don't know. It's very, very dubious, I think. We have our youngest ever. Well, I don't know. People don't usually identify their age, but maybe he's the youngest ever. Um, Kyle Carroza. Hi, Bruce and Stu. This is Kyle from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm only 20 years old, so I haven't listened for too long, but I'm a big fan of the show. I have a question about the future of college football. In the context of the facilities and recruiting arms race around the country, do you expect there to be less and less parity in the sport as big budget programs are able to lure more and more recruits and better coaches away from schools on a tighter budget? We kind of addressed that with the uh, Michigan situation. Um, I think that people assume that that's what's going to happen, yeah. and then I would just say I think it's already happening. Like I don't, I don't. You can pour all the money into a um, water slide. What's Clemson putting in water slides and putt putt courses? And that's great, but I don't know that that's going to have any effect whatsoever on a player. I don't think that's going to cause a player to turn down Troy to go to Clemson. No, but I, I think that they're, you know, and I, we've talked about this before. I just think the gap is so pronounced already between some of these schools, between the haves and the have-nots, whether they have a barber shop in their, in their indoor facility or not. I just think that's not going to sway somebody. Because they already have those X, Y, and Z things to begin with. I just, how many recruits really do pick the schools based on the facilities? I think it's something that they all feel like they have to have, and and they got to spend that money on something called it's gold plating is I believe the term that's referred to when you, you know, you're a nonprofit, so you got to spend the money on something. Um, so why not spend it on waterfalls? But I just, you know, they're picking it based on where do I think. Will give me the best chance to win a championship. Send me to the NFL, where I like the coaches. Mm-hmm. I just don't think the water slides are the difference maker. I'm with you on that. I'm with you. Uh, how about this question from Tyler Hanley from Peoria, Illinois? Stu and Bruce, I was just wondering how you think Missouri will perform in what could be a down SEC East next year, and will Georgia live up to the hype they are currently receiving? Also, is Barry Odom the right coach to rebuild Mizzou? Is it going to be even more down than it was the past two years? It's been pretty down, the SEC. Yeah, East. I agree. Uh, I do think Georgia is going to live up to the hype because I think they went through a lot of the bumps that you would, might expect from a big coaching change. And, and this wasn't just any coaching change. This was replacing a guy who'd been there for 15 years and had a very distinctive culture with a guy in Kirby Smart who's basically trying to recreate Alabama there. So they went through their bumps. They had a true freshman quarterback, and I think that, you know, we know how talented they are. Uh, but getting both Chubb and Michelle back, I mean, this isn't going to be the first time I've said this, but if they don't win if, if they don't win the SEC East next year, something went wrong. And we said that about Tennessee this past year, and something did go wrong. So it's not that easy. Is, is Barry Odom the right coach to rebuild Mizzou? I don't know that we know that yet. Um they had a rough first year, and it's hard to say how much of that was the fault of Odom and how much of it was there were some cracks in that. Pro- I mean, they didn't go from SEC East uh, title to, what was their record last year, 4-8? and eight? 
Yeah, and they didn't go I, for that I overnight. They opener. struggled the year before. Yeah, I had them in their opener, and they definitely had some issues. Now they have some good players, but they had a young quarterback who really hadn't been coached the previous year, and I think that that was there was some some real challenges there. If you look at at what they did, it was weird because they they did beat Arkansas to close the year out, so that was a positive, and they beat Vandy. What does that mean that he wasn't coached the previous year? It means that they really didn't have a quarterback coach in two, you know, when he was a true freshman quarterback. Well, that seems like a problem. Yeah, and so last year, you know, Josh Heupel came in. He was obviously a great quarterback at OU himself. I think he he did help, and um, you know, they struggled on defense. And it was you know Demonte Cross who came from Gary Patterson. He's an old Mizzou player himself, a really good player there, and very tight with Barry Odom. I think they were they were struggling to find their way. Uh, I, I think Barry Odom deserves more time before people, like you said, you know, get a sense of what he can do there. And, you know, it was they were they were really bad on defense. No, no question. And he's a first time head coach. And whether you're a first time head coach at at Florida or wherever, if you're in the SEC, that's a tough place to learn from. And and I think, as you said, they had had a lot of issues both on and off the field that racked that program in 2015. So to expect them to be much better coming in that first year, I think was a tall order. But like I said, at least they did finish with, you know, two out of their last three games, they did win. And, you know, it's not bad to, you know, Vandy went to a bowl game. Arkansas doesn't, it's not like Arkansas doesn't have players. Arkansas went to a bowl game. So at least they finished on a positive note. Right. Do you remember, I think it was last week, the Pac-12 schedule came out and we talked about how USC got uh, stuck with no bye week. Mm-hmm. And you suggested that the SEC would never do to, you know, the Pac-12 screwed over its marquee program. The SEC wouldn't do that to Alabama. Bill Thomas from Bronx, New York, brings up that in 2010, the only year that Saban's had three losses since his first year, Bama played six teams coming off their own bye weeks. I remember that being a huge deal to Bama fans. I remember that too. And so I looked it up and that's the year that they were number one in the country coming off the first national championship under Saban. And then they ran into of all, of all teams and of all people, Steven Garcia and South Carolina on the road and got whooped and then did lose three games that year. And South Carolina. So I looked it up. South Carolina was, was the first of that. They were the first of six straight teams they played coming off bye weeks. Needless to say, that has not happened since. Yeah, maybe they learned their lesson. And finally, Derek says, Stu and Bruce, since you've known them for a while, I was curious what you guys think of Mike Riley hiring Bob Diaco as defensive coordinator in Nebraska and whether or not they can work together. Riley's niceness, non-confrontational nature lead him to choose similar assistants. And while I'm thrilled that a coordinator of Diaco's stature is at Nebraska, I worry that his fiery slash quirky personality won't mesh with some of Riley's other assistants and staff. Quirky is one way to describe Diaco. Yeah, now, for what it's worth, I did hear that that Mike Riley in Nebraska got very positive reports back from Notre Dame staffers and Brian Kelly before they had made that move. So I that should bode well. Um, I don't know. In some of the cases, the Diaco pers- you know, persona – you know, he didn't speak to the media much when he was the defensive coordinator at, at Notre Dame. So I would guess if he's just kind of an engine room guy in that regard, it's probably a good thing. 
I was surprised, frankly, that Riley fired Mark Banker. He had been working with him for, you know, back to the beginning, I believe, of his Oregon State tenure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know it's a business and you got to fire people sometimes, but that still surprised me. Yeah, and I mean, look, I think the pressure there had definitely grown of what, uh, you know, Nebraska expectations are pretty high. They had a tough year the year before. Uh, you look back, so he had been with them, started back with them in the, in the uh, I guess I want to say the mid, mid-90s. Jeez, even I further think, back than I realized. Yeah, I think they might, I think Riley was with, they were together at USC. I know Riley came from USC and I know Banker did. And then uh, they went to Oregon State where they were there. Then they went to the Chargers together. I think there was a little bit of time where Banker was at Stanford, but then he came back when Riley got hired back, and he was with him for the last dozen or maybe more than a dozen years. Well, ultimately, I think it's a great hire for Riley. You get a guy who was the defensive coordinator of an undefeated team, regular season at Cincinnati, a team that an undefeated team that went to the national championship game at Notre Dame. I mean, the guy... Uh, did not work out as a head coach, to say the least, but I think we can agree he's a good defensive coordinator. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Banker was a good defensive coordinator, too. So He was, but I guess not enough recently, right? I mean, they, they had a pretty brutal year last year with the, uh, um, what was it, 62, 62-3 Ohio State, 59-3? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then uh, I think the one that, that probably stung the most and led to that move was the Iowa game. Yeah, it was, you know, look, I, I think we talked about this a lot during the year. I felt like they were a they were overinflated team. I know they won nine games, but when you looked at, you know, who they were beating and I just thought it was a pretty pretty underwhelming team. Right. So I know you uh you made that well known on a weekly basis. Well, I think part of it was yeah, look, I mean, they got drilled by Tennessee at the bowl game and they got certainly drilled at Iowa, so I don't know. I feel like they had kind of fattened up a little bit like some of those some of those Big Ten West teams do. All right, so let's do a little quick programming note before we go. Next week is signing day, and we've done a little, something on the Audible the last couple of years that worked out really well, which is have a bunch of coaches from around the country come on, talk about their class, and talk about other topics of interest regarding their program because signing day is a day when they're all doing interviews. Now, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to join me this year. I am not. I'm going to be on the road. I'll embed with a college program. I will have a story, hopefully, uh, after signing day. That will be a standalone and then maybe some more on that. So, But you will, you will hold down the fort. I'm going to try. You know, arrangements are being made. I can't really promise anything right now. But So it's different. It's just I'm bringing it up now because it's going to be a little different than what you're used to with the you get an episode on Monday, you get an episode on Wednesday. You will see, hopefully, knock on wood, quite a few mini episodes pop up in your iTunes feed uh, or Google Play that day or the next day. And they will be, you know, short interviews with these guys. So, I don't know, pick and choose as you may. Hopefully you'll listen to all of them or just listen to the ones, guys, you're most interested in. Uh, so just be warned of that. It's going to be a little bit different next week, but it's a great opportunity to catch up with a lot of guys at once and uh and obviously at a time when they're all in the news uh as always send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com and subscribe to the audible on itunes stitcher or your favorite podcast app we'll see you next time